Believe it or not, I am young enough, old enough, whichever way around is the right way, to remember that when you used to want photographs, you used to have to take a, take a picture with your camera and then take the roll of film. Remember this? Andy remembers it. Take your roll of film to the local chemist and then they would take it away for five days if you paid the fee or two weeks and then they would process and develop your photos and you would then wait for them to drop through the mat or go back to the chemist, drop through the door onto your mat and pick them up and then you would be able to see the pictures. And do you remember then they would send the pictures and the little negative strips and the negative strips, I, I was always fascinated by them because you'd lift them up to the light and you would be unable to recognize uh, the people in the picture because they were kind of shadowy images of what you had taken a picture of. And, and most people, some people are tracking with me. Rebecca looks like I'm speaking a foreign language. So perhaps if you're a millennial, you have no idea what I'm talking about because you just grew up in a world of digital pictures. But Andy Mabry will tell you all about it afterwards because he's old enough to remember. <laughs> but you used to get these negatives, <clears throat> shadowy images. You couldn't see the features, you couldn't see the colors, you could, but contained within those negatives was everything you needed to make a fantastic picture that would sit on your wall. And Isaiah is a little bit like the negatives of a, of a photograph. In the book of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to 66, as we've been going through over these last few weeks, Isaiah is working on two different levels, if you like. So when you read it, if anybody's read it, you'll see that he's working on two different levels. He's working on a level of geopolitical position. And what that means is that Isaiah hears a word from God that... The people of Israel are going to be exiled to Babylon. Uh, and then God is going to raise a, a political savior up to free them from their bondage in Babylon and bring them back into the promised land. And actually, from, I think, chapter 45 onwards, he actually goes on to name who this savior would be. He's going to be Cyrus, the king of Persia, who's going to be raised up by God to free the Jews from Babylon. Persia's going to invade Babylon and then he's going to free the Jews. So Isaiah foresees this and tells the people of Israel that that's going to happen. That's one level that Isaiah is working on. But Isaiah is also working on another level because he sees another figure that God is raising up on the more distant horizon. And this figure is much more difficult to identify. He's much more difficult to get your hands around. But he is the one who God will raise up to deliver his people from their deepest problems. Not just political problems, not just geographical relocation, but their rebellion against God because of their sin. And this figure is going to rescue God's people from the mess of their lives and the consequences that they face. And this figure is called the servant. <clears throat> the servant. And Isaiah gives us four pictures, four negatives, if you like, of what this servant will be like. Four poems that are woven throughout the second half of Isaiah that point us to the Messiah and him in his grandeur and reality. Now, we read the first servant song uh, maybe three weeks ago, I think, uh, and this morning we're going to read the second servant song. Now, in the first servant song, God from heaven spoke about the servant, but what we're about to read are words that Isaiah puts on the servant's lips himself so it's it's the servant now speaking to God's people and this is what 
Isaiah records the servant saying, chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. And then in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have, I've laboured in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate, prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you this morning that you are a God who speaks today. And even though these words that we read were written three, nearly 3,000 years ago, we thank you that because of your Holy Spirit, we can hear them afresh today and benefit from them. Lord, we pray that you would draw us to yourself right now, draw us to your word, draw us by your Spirit so that we might hear your voice speaking to us and that we might be encouraged from your word, by your promises, and you would strengthen our faith to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as I said, these are words that the servant himself speaks. And if you notice in verse 1, he seems to have the audacity to call everybody who has ever uh, lived, if you like, from the coastlands to the far-off lands to come and listen to him. Now, how does the servant have so much audacity to do that. How can he demand that everybody listen to me? Well, he, Isaiah uses the term, listen to me, uh, six other times in the book of Isaiah. And every time that that kind of formula is used, it's on the lips of God, as God speaks a direct word to his people. So I think when Isaiah uses it here, he's saying, the one that you're about to hear from speaks just like God speaks. The one that you're about to hear from who demands that you listen to him is aligning himself with God. He's speaking as if God is speaking. He possesses the same divine authority as God. So listen to him. And it's kind of a hint at the origins of the servant. <clears throat> and so the servant says, listen up, because I'm about to speak just like God speaks. 
I'm about to say something with the same divine authority that God does. I'm about to say words that will penetrate with power your heart in the same way as God speaking. And so obviously we want to listen and we want to know what's he going to tell us. Well, three things that he's going to tell us this morning. He's going to tell us about the servant's life of preparation. Then he's going to tell us about the servant's work of restoration. Then he's going to tell us about the servant's future of exaltation. So preparation, restoration, exaltation. So let's begin with that first one. The servant's life of preparation. You see this in verses 1 to 4. Isaiah draws our attention to the servant's divine character by the terms, listen to me. But he then quickly moves on to establish the servant's human credentials. So in this very, this first verse, you have the divine character of the servant and the human credentials of the servant. Because he draws our attention to the fact that the servant is going to be born to a woman through the natural process of human birth from a womb into the world. Okay, But he also tells us that the servant has been called and named from his mother's womb. Now that word called carries this kind of idea that it's not just always going to be called so and so. But it's a, he's been called to a divine appointment, a sovereign divine appointment to a special status and a special function. A little bit like a king might call someone to be their ambassador. It's a kind of calling, a special calling. This servant who's still in his mother's womb has been called and appointed to this task before he was born. The God's grace is upon this person even before he's lived a life that might merit God's favour. He is blessed by God from before he was born. He's been called to a special task before he was born and he's been named before he was born. Now in the Old Testament names are very significant because they carried with them the, the character and the reputation of the person. So often they would be named, uh, you know, you, or you see God changing people's names because he says, no, you were once this, but now I'm going to change your name to this because you're going to do this for me. So to be named in the womb gives the impression, Isaiah wants us to understand, that the servant is coming into the world with a very specific task. He's going to do something that he's been commissioned to do since before he was born. This divine figure with human credentials is coming on a mission that was set before he was born. That's all wrapped up in verse 1. Now in the first servant song, <clears throat> if you remember from Isaiah 42, I don't know whether you, well hopefully you remember three weeks ago, the servant uh, is spoken of and the words that God uses to talk about the servant is that he's going to establish justice and he's going to bring God's justice and law into the world. Those words justice and law dominate the first servant song. And they, we said that, that was the, uh, they, they taught the idea, they conveyed the idea that this servant who was coming into the world was going to bring God's kingdom into the world. That he wasn't just going to do justice in terms of like legal correctness, but justice was a word that meant blueprint. That he was going to bring God's blueprint for how things should be into the world. That he was going to bring justice in making all things right. He was going to make the world according to God's blueprint. That he was going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this servant figure was portrayed as a kind of king-like figure. In meekness and majesty. 
Now here in this second servant song, the servant is more of a prophet figure. So he, in the first servant song he was a king figure, now he's a prophet-like figure. Because the emphasis is on his message. Look with me at verse uh, 2, where the servant says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. So the most important feature that the servant wants us to know about himself in this song is his mouth. Because he's the mouthpiece or the messenger for God and his mouth is like a sharp sword. Now elsewhere in the Bible, the word of God is described as a a sword. So I think here we're supposed to understand that this one, this servant is coming with a message from God. He's coming with the word of God and he's going to bring it to God's people. And he's a sharp sword because what he's got to say is going to cut and penetrate to the hearts and lives of God's people with an effectiveness that only God can speak with. And he also then goes on to describe him as a polished arrow. Now in the world of warfare, back in the day when arrows were the, the sort of weapon of choice, they would polish arrows and scrub them and shine them to remove the sort of roughness or the, the sort of unevenness that might cause an arrow to sort of go off and be deflected when it was fired. And so as, as, as the servant describes himself as a polished arrow, he's saying, I'm free from the roughness, I'm free from the unevenness that might distract me or throw me off course. I am, I'm going to be 100% accurate. So he's going to bring God's 100% accurate word like a sharp sword with effectiveness to cut. As Hebrews uh, chapter 4 says, the word of God is living and active, able to cut and separate sinew and bone. The servant's going to come with God's message. And the fact that he's coming with a sword and an arrow, or as a sword and an arrow, swords for hand-to-hand close combat, arrows for distant attacks, I think Isaiah is just trying to say to us, the servant is prepared for whatever awaits him. He's fully equipped for whatever God puts in front of him, for the battles that that are going to come, as he is God's mouthpiece in the world. He is going to be fully equipped, properly prepared for everything and anything that he will face as he comes into the world to declare God's message. Now, there's a couple of things in this chapter that are surprising and shocking. Okay, so having told us that he's a sharp sword and a polished arrow, he then tells us that God's going to hide him away. Did you notice that in verse two? Two times he says, in the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and in the quiver, he hid me away. That's a surprise, isn't it? Why? God is sending this servant who's a sharp sword and a polished arrow. Why is he hiding him? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But then something even more surprising in verse 4 the servant says this i've labored in vain i spent my strength for nothing and in vanity these are words that are almost on the point of discouragement and despair and they're on the vo- they're on the lips of the servant so what does that mean The sharp sword, the polished arrow, one who has everything, who has been properly prepared for every battle that he faces. Now, in the very next verse says, I feel like I've labored in vain. I feel like I've given my strength for nothing. What does Isaiah mean by this? Well, let's start with verse 4, and that I have labored in vain. 
Because I think what Isaiah is trying to convey to us is that the servant is lamenting the fact that from all outward appearances and from all human measurements, everything that he does, the work that he's going to undertake, is going to appear to have failed. It's going to appear that it was futile and worthless and didn't accomplish what he hoped it would accomplish. And yet, in verse 4b, the second half of the verse, we have words that are... that intermingle the despair and the discouragement that he feels with hope. I feel like I've labored in vain. I feel like I've given my strength for nothing. And yet I'm going to trust God that he knows what is right. And he'll vindicate me and he'll reward my work. And so you have this kind of mix of sorrow and faith. And so we read the first four verses and we're left, I hope, with the question, well, who is the servant then? And Isaiah tells us in verse 3, And he said to me, God said to the servant, You are my servant, Israel. Now perhaps you find that confusing. Hang on a minute. I thought we were speaking about a servant figure, and now God calls the servant figure Israel. Does he mean the nation of Israel, or does he mean someone else? or does he? Uh, what's going on here? Well, I think Isaiah wants us to see from the context of what he's written and what he'll go on to say that he's not speaking about the nation of Israel in a plurality. He is speaking still to one individual person because this one individual person, the key aspect of his mission is to restore the nation of Israel to proper relationship with God. So how could the nation of Israel restore themselves to proper relationship with God? They can't do that because they're in sin and exile. So this figure in verse 3 must be someone else separate from the nation of Israel but so closely tied to them that he can identify with them that he can be called Israel and so Isaiah is communicating to us that this servant figure that is coming that he calls Israel in verse 3 is closely identified with the nation he comes from the nation of Israel he represents the nation of Israel he stands in the place of Israel as their substitute, and he will undertake his work on behalf of Israel. That this figure, this servant figure, will do all that Israel was supposed to do. In the Old Testament, God calls Israel to be his holy people so that they might be a witness, a priest-like, have a priest-like function of witnessing and telling and proclaiming to the surrounding nations about the nature of the one true God that they worshipped. And yet they stuffed it up because they traded that God for idols. And they messed it up. They should have been a blessing to all the nations that God first promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. But they didn't do that. Instead, they turned to the other nations to receive blessings for them that were futile and empty as they worshipped false gods. And so Isaiah says, no, this servant figure is going to come. And he's going to step into the gap that the nation of Israel left because of their sin and apostasy. And he's going to stand in that gap and do all that Israel was supposed to do. He's going to be the prophet par excellence, if you like. He's going to be the prophet who will speak with a perfect word. And will bring perfect fulfillment to all that God has promised. Now what is that work? That's the second thing. It's a work of restoration. It's a work of restoration. And this is in verses 5 and 6. 
God has called and named and equipped this servant from the womb for a work of restoration. Look at how he describes it in verse 5. He has called me from the womb, formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to bring the people of Jacob, the 12 tribes that came from the sons of Jacob, so that Israel might be gathered to him. So it's a work of restoration. He's going to come and he's going to take hold of broken people and heal them and mend them. He's going to take hold of sinners and restore them. He's going to take people who are just like Jacob, who was a swindler and a cheater and a liar, And make them God's people. That's what the servant is coming to do. That's his task. It's a work of restoration. He's going to come and he's going to take the exiles. Who are outside of God's kingdom. And bring them home. But it's not a geopolitical bringing them home. It's a spiritual bringing them home. Cyrus is going to bring the people back from Babylon. The servant is going to bring them back from spiritual exile to home with their father. It's a little bit like the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Do you remember the prodigal son? The son goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance. Then he wanders off to a far country, squanders it all in sinful living, ends up in a pigsty. And then thinks, i got to go back. I've got to go back, but I'll go back as a servant. I'll go back as a slave in my father's house because even the slaves and the servants do better than eating with the pigs. And he goes back and what does he find? He finds his father looking out for him with arms open wide, ready to receive him back to himself. And here the servant has, is that kind of uh, restorative uh, He has that kind of restorative function. Israel is the son who wandered off. He ended up in a far country, worshipping foreign gods, squandering his inheritance, chasing idols and empty pleasures, ended up in a mess. And the servant is the one who is going to come and lead Israel back to the father. Put the ring on his finger. Cook the fattened cow. Give him the best robes and restore him to the father. And we'll notice if you, if you go on to verse 6 that the servant's work is not limited to just Jews only. It's not limited to the Old Testament ethnic Israel, the people of God that we read about there. God has a greater task for the servant. In fact, he says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and just to bring the, the back the preserved of Israel. He, he basically says, rescuing the Jews is small fry. That's a small thing. Here's what I really want you to do. I want you to be a light for the nations. That my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Yes, God wants to bring back his, uh, his, um, <coughs> the, the preserved of Israel as he describes them in verse 6. But he has more plans. He has greater plans than just bringing some Jews to Jesus. He wants his salvation go to the ends of the earth. He wants his message of the good news that God is a saving God, a restoring God, to go to all 
the nations. He wants to shine the light of hope, of salvation to people living in darkness. And so the servant is God's appointed and God's anointed messenger. The light to the nations, the saviour of the world, not just the Jews. And he will come to shine his light into the darkest corners and recesses of this world. To bring people into his light. That's the work of the servant. And then we're told in verse 7 that the servant, because of his work, will experience a future exaltation. Look at verse 7 with me. We're invited into a private conversation between the God in heaven and the servant. And God in heaven says to the servant, this is, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One, and he's speaking to one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. So the God of heaven speaks now in a private conversation that's made public to us, to the servant, and says this, Kings shall see and arise, and princes shall prostrate themselves before you. He says, get ready. Though you are deeply despised, though you will be hated by the nation of Israel, though earthly rulers will view you as little more than a slave or a servant, the humiliation that you face will actually be the pathway to exaltation. Now Isaiah doesn't tell us how this would happen. He just simply foresees the day when earthly kings and princes, and by saying earthly kings and princes, that means and everybody who's, a, who's a part of their kingdom, all the citizens of these kings and princes, they'll all bow down. Everybody will bow down before the servant as they recognise who he truly is. Think about this. <coughs> if you were fortunate enough to be nominated for an OBE, right, and if you want to put me forward at some point, I'm happy to receive that humble as I am. Uh, no, but if you, if you got to go to the palace in London, Buckingham Palace, and you got ushered into the throne room and the queen was sitting down, she's not going to stand up from her throne and go ahead and shake your hand. She do Monarchs don't rise in the presence of, of regular people, no matter whether they're worthy of an OBE or not. You, you don't see monarchs get up and they don't go, oh, hi, Nathan, great to see you. Thanks for popping in. They stay there and you do the bowing. Don't you? You do the curtsying. You do the, oh, your majesty. So humbled to meet you. But here in verse 7, Isaiah says, no, when, when the servant arrives, all the kings are going to be on their feet. All the monarchs who don't usually rise will rise. And then when they've stood up, here's what they'll do. They'll fall on their faces <coughs> to exalt this servant. Isaiah foresees a great reversal coming when all will bow before the meekness and majesty of this servant and he will receive the glory due his name. Now imagine if you were hearing this for the first time 2,700 years ago. Imagine we could get in a time machine and go back and hear this for the very first time. Perhaps our eyes would be wider than they are right now. 
and our hearts would be beating a little bit faster than they are now. And our palms might be a little bit sweatier than they are now because we'd go, wow, what's going to happen? Who is this figure that God speaks about that is going to cause kings to rise and then fall before them? Who is this one who's going to restore the Jews back to God? Who is this one who's going to then shine the light of the, of the good news of God's salvation to the Gentiles? Who is he? What's he going to be like? When is he going to come? But what we have here are the negatives. Going back to our earlier illustration. We hold them up to the light and we just see shadowy figures. We can't quite see They would have looked on and gone, that all sounds great and I think I can kind of see what you're talking about, but where's the full picture? But God then says that, just like we had to do back in the day, send your roll of film to the local chemist for it to be developed, and then you had to wait. God made the people wait for the full pictures. 700 years passed by. As the negatives were processed and the pictures delivered. And then we read this in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, it should come up on the screen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. You see that? Right there in Matthew chapter 1, the servant, who we're told would be called and named when he was in his womb, Jesus receives his name from an angel before he was born. And we're told what his mission would be. Call him Jesus. Verse 21. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then think about Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to visit Jesus after he has been born. These Gentile wise men, astrologers, who were looking at the stars and they noticed that a new king had been born. They follow him, uh, they follow the star, they end up eventually in Bethlehem. And because of the situation and circumstances, the life of Jesus is at threat because of King Herod, who wants no challenge to his throne, and he threatens to kill all the children, all the boys who are under the age of two. God comes again in another dream to Joseph, and he then tells them that they've got to go to Egypt so that they can be safe from Herod's threats. And what we read in in chapter (coughs) 2, excuse me, 
verse 13. Sorry, verse 15. Where Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and applies it to Jesus, he says this. This, uh, they have to go down to Egypt, and they remain there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That was first applied to Israel, the nation of Israel. They were called out by God in the Exodus under Moses from Egypt. I called my son Israel out of Egypt. But here in chapter 2 of Matthew, Matthew says that applies to Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. I'm calling him out of Egypt. Calling my son out of Egypt. He is the true Israel. And Jesus, this sword and this polished arrow, who is the messenger of God's salvation. Think about his life after he was born. His identity was concealed, wasn't it? Just like Isaiah foretold. Jesus grew up in a peasant home to Joseph the carpenter and Mary. He didn't live in a palace. He didn't live even in Jerusalem, the capital city. He lived in Nazareth. Which if you read John chapter 1, when they're saying, we, when the, the men who will become the disciples, uh, Andrew and Peter and, and, uh, <coughs> and such like, they're having a conversation and they say, come, we think we found the Messiah. And they say, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He lived in obscurity. He was hidden. For 30 years in a place that no one considered important. As he was prepared intellectually and spiritually and emotionally and physically to be the saviour that we needed to be. We needed him to be. And then if you flip over to Luke chapter 2. Oh, in fact, this will come up on the screen as well so you don't. But here's some of the way that Luke records Jesus growing up. Luke chapter 2 verse 21 and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel while he was con before he was conceived in the womb. There it is again. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And they made offerings and sacrifices for him because Jesus needed to live a perfect life. And he completely fulfilled the law. And then if you flip down to verse 39 and 40 and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and this child this Jesus grew up and became strong he was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him and then verse 52 and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man he was being prepared in hiding for all that he needed to do for us but then at just the right time, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Mark records this. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. At just the right time, the sword was unsheathed. And the arrow was pulled from the quiver and he, met, and he gave the message that he had been sent to do. Repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom is coming. 
Now, what about the words of lament in, in verse 4 of Isaiah 49? Were they ever on the lips of Jesus? Did he ever say, feel downbeat and discouraged and to the point of despairing? Well, think about, uh, we don't have time to turn there and they won't come up on the screen. But in Luke chapter 9, he, as he's looking out over Jerusalem, he is moved to tears and he says, how long? How long is this going to be? How long are you going to have so little faith? Or in Mark chapter 8, he was grieved by his disciples' failure to understand who he was and why he came. And, what, and they continue to argue about who's going to be the greatest. And, and he, he laments and despairs. Then in Mark chapter 14, he foresees his disciples falling away and deserting him at his hour of greatest need. Think about this, he was a man who performed numerous signs and wonders. He was a man who preached powerful sermons. He was a man who lived a perfect life and was constantly pouring himself out for others. And yet he was despised and rejected by his fellow people, by his fellow Jews. And he was condemned as a criminal and he was subjected to execution by way of a Roman cross. And he was betrayed by one of his inner circle of friends for 30 pieces of silver, the same price that you could buy a slave for. And then in his hour of greatest need, all of his friends fleed to save their own skins. And then he was nailed to a cross. And what did he cry out when he was on that cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, from all outward appearances... And from all human measurements, at that point, in darkness on a cross, it would have appeared that the servant's mission had failed. It would have appeared that all of his preaching, all of his miracles, all of his life, everything that he had done up to that point was in vain. Because here he was, dead, on a cross, buried in a tomb. But that's not the only thing he cried on the cross, was it, when he died? He also said, Father, into my spirit I commit, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was hope amidst the suffering as he entrusted himself to God who would vindicate him and reward him for his work. And then as the, one of the songs that we sing goes, on the third at break of dawn, the stone was rolled away. And God vindicated the son's work. He rewarded the servant and Jesus was risen from the dead. And he, in that moment, in his death and resurrection, had done work that could restore Jacob to God. He had done work that means broken people can find healing. He did work that means exiled people can be brought home. He did work that means sinners can be forgiven. And he did work that means dead people like you and me can find life in him. He is the light of the world. And through his work, he brings men and women like you and me out of the darkness of our sin into the light of his kingdom. Paul says it in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his kingdom of light. He is the savior of the world for all who will receive his message with faith. People from every tribe and language and nation. 
Think about the book of Acts and what it records about the way that Jesus works through his church. In Acts chapter, uh, well, go back a little bit further to John chapter 20. After Jesus is resurrected, what does he do? He goes and he finds the disciples and he restores them back to fellowship with him. Then in chapter 21 of John's gospel, he goes and finds Peter who denied him three times and he restores him back to them. Then in Acts chapter 1, as he ascends into heaven, he restores them and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the 11 get together in an upper room and they begin to pray. And that 11 turns into 120 believers. And then that 120 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 turns into 3,000 believers. And then in Acts chapter 4, that 3,000 could turn into 5,000. Or it might mean that 5,000 were added to that 3,000, which would make 8,000. And then by the time you get to Acts 21 which is 20 years after Acts chapter 2 you find Paul being told by the apostles in Jerusalem that the gospel has spread to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews but it also spread to the Gentiles think about Matthew's gospel and how in his genealogy in chapter 1, when he lists Jesus' family tree, he includes Gentile women in Jesus' family line. The first people after the shepherds that come to worship Jesus are Gentile wise men who come and lay their gifts before him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, when Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew records it that he started in Galilee of the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 8, it is a Gentile centurion, a Roman soldier who is commended for his faith as he comes and seeks healing for his son. In Matthew 15, it's a Gentile woman who is commended for her faith as having greater faith than the Jewish religious leaders. In Matthew 28, Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, go into all the nations and make disciples. And then, as I said, in Acts chapter 1, be my witnesses from Judea. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then if you get to Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, the very words that they use, that they tell the group in Antioch that God has commissioned them by is Isaiah 49. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. It's the prompt that they needed to go on mission. Because God is on mission to gather and to restore people that have been separated from him because of, by sin and make them his own. Jesus is in the process of gathering Jews and Gentiles into his kingdom and glorifying God. And that mission continues today. It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Bristol. It's gone to Bristol. It's come to us. We're here this morning because someone told us about Jesus. And we're here this morning because God wants us to go and tell someone about Jesus. That's why we gave you these flyers on your seat. Because, (coughs) I think I mentioned this last year, um, 95% of the population in the UK, 60 million people don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. 100 people a day in this city die without knowing Jesus. That's in our city. Out of the 32 houses on our little cul-de-sac, there's us and another young couple who are Christians. 
That's probably more Christians maps than there's on your street. Our nation is very needy. But Jesus is the light to the nation, to the city, to the community of Down End and Staple Hill and Bromley Heath, Nemesons Green and Mangotsfield and wherever you come from. And Christmas is still the one time in the year where the light shines brightest because people are, are, people are thinking about it. People are thinking about life. They're thinking about what Christmas means. So pick up your invitations and take them and let's invite people to messy church. Let's invite them to the carol service, the family service thing. Let's invite them to the, the, the carols by candlelight with the choir. Not because, oh, we just want big numbers, but because we want them to hear the message of Jesus. Don't, uh, don't take these and think, oh, I, I can't give these to people because they'll just say no. They might say yes. Wouldn't it be terrible if we said someone's no for them? Wouldn't it be terrible if we got to heaven and they said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, I'm sorry, I just didn't think you would believe. <coughs> let's take these flyers and let's do what Paul and Barnabas said. They said, he has made us a light to the nations. He's the head. He has been made the light to the nations. We're his body, so we should go wherever the head goes. He goes as a light to the nations and he calls us to be a light to the nations. So take our flyers. Let's begin to pray. Let's begin to think, who can we reach out to? What neighbours can we invite? What work colleagues can we invite? What friends and family can we invite? What strangers on the street can we invite? Who can we invite to find out about Jesus? Because without him, they're going to hell. It's a simple task. It makes me scared. Let me tell you, it makes me scared. Because I am so aware that I would rather be liked by my neighbours and thought of as a good neighbour than be hated by them because I told them about Jesus. And that is wrong. Let's invite people Imagine if all of us invited one person. That would be a hundred people this Christmas or so that hear about Jesus. Imagine if we invited two, five, ten. We had two and a half thousand leaflets printed. Imagine if we delivered all of those. And we gave them all out. <coughs> And even if the statistics are right and only 5% of, of people know about Jesus, that's 95% of our community that doesn't know about Jesus. That's 40,000 people outside these, these doors and windows who need to hear about Jesus. Imagine if we took these 2,500 flyers and 5% and responded. What's that? That's like 100 people, yeah who could have their lives changed forever. Let's pray. Let's trust God to do his work. He is, he has made Jesus to be the light of the world. And he's given us his spirit to be his witnesses. So it's a scary task, I get that. 
but it's a task that he calls us to do with faith and joy. So let me encourage you. Let's go this Christmas being Christ's ambassadors to make him known. And then finally, think about Jesus. In verse 7, we, the Isaiah spoke about the exaltation that Jesus, that the servant would experience despite the humiliation. Well, Paul writes it this way, and I'm going to finish with this. This is Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then this is how he describes Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.